Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Today we continue in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the sermon series Pastor Bruce has been leading us through. Today we're going to finish chapter 5. We're going to read the last six verses um, on love. So if you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 553, and we're going to use the last verse on 554. So follow along with me as we read. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than any other? Do you... Do even not tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today, together as a congregation, to praise you and to worship you in song and in word and to hear and meditate. We thank you for your Son, who not only... In this, in this passage today has led us and taught us and instructed us in the ways how we are to live, but also for his sacrifice for us to be in right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that today we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive as Pastor Bruce uh, leads us in this message this morning, talking and teaching from the greatest teacher. Thank you once again for your son and his sacrifice. In your name, amen. Oh, what an awesome song. In fact, I heard some some people around me kind of singing that song a little bit. And uh, in fact, that song kind of makes you, you want to sing along. Well, you never know what will grab someone's attention. Mohammed Hassan Youssef grew up as a Muslim. From an early age, he studied the Quran, memorized his teachings, said the daily prayers, and followed the way of Islam as faithfully as he could. In that respect, he was like many other young men growing up in Palestinian towns in the West Bank, with one important exception. His father was one of the founders of Hamas, the militant terrorist organization. You would think he would be, you wouldn't think he would be a likely candidate for conversion to Christianity. But the ways of God are beyond human explanation. In his book, Son of Hamas, Yusuf tells how he met a man who gave him a New Testament Bible. And because of his interest in religious matters, he decided to read it for himself what it said. Naturally, being the New Testament, he started with the book of Matthew. And soon he encountered the Sermon on the Mount. And there he got his first unfiltered exposure to the pure teachings of Jesus Christ, and it blew him away. When Yusuf was interviewed on American Family Radio, he told the same story that he writes in his book. You couldn't get away from the revolutionary nature of Jesus' teaching. One particular point stayed in his mind. Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 43 and 45 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I was thunderstruck, he said. This was the message he had been looking for. And soon he became a Christ follower. Three words so captured his heart, he simply couldn't get away from them. Love your enemies. On the radio, he said, all other religions say, love your friends or love your neighbor. But only Jesus says, love your enemies. So easy to say and yet so hard to do. This may be perhaps the most challenging command Jesus ever gave to his followers. Even when we read it here in the Bible, it is difficult to believe Jesus really meant what he said here. It's so alien to our thinking. It's so foreign to our way of life. And it certainly goes against the grain of our culture today. I mean, let's be honest. We are pleased with ourselves if and when we love our family and friends, even though that is oftentimes a struggle. At least family tends to be supportive of you, and friends will trade favors with you in hopes of staying your friend. As for neighbors, we can endure their flaws as long as we keep our distance from them. But love our enemies? Are you kidding me? No way. At best, we try to be polite, stay out of their way. So why would we want to love those who strive to do us harm? But let us once again, let us listen with open hearts to what Jesus says here in his sermon on the mount. This is the final teaching in this particular section of his sermon here in Matthew chapter 5, where he has been redefining our understanding of the law by spelling out for us exactly what this exceeding righteousness or this surpassing righteousness really looks like for those who claim to be Christ followers, for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in this final example here, Jesus shows us what exceeding righteousness looks like now when it comes to our enemies. So here's the big idea. Here's what we're going to see from the words of Christ himself. And it's right here in your notes coming up on the screen. And that is when Jesus rules our lives, we will love without limits. We will love without limits. That is, we won't limit the extent of our love to some people. Rather, we will embrace our obligation as Christ followers to love all people, even our enemies. Now, this is not a repetition of what we learned last Sunday. You may remember last Sunday we learned about resisting revenge against those who harm us. But think about it. Even people who we consider our friends can harm us by accident or ignorance or even neglect. But an enemy is one who harms us intentionally. In fact, they harm us with hopes to wound us. And yet Jesus says, love them. Love your enemy. That's love without limits. So let's break this down, what Jesus teaches us here once again. And you'll notice we're going to look at the, what the Pharisees taught. 
The Pharisees or the Jewish religious leaders simply taught to hate your enemy. Jesus says in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said. In other words, this is what you have been taught through the years. This is what your leaders have taught you. This is their summary of the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so Jesus begins, as he has the previous five times, by quoting or summarizing God's law in the Old Testament before correcting the Pharisees' perversion of it. But here, in this particular case, Jesus confronts an even more perverted twisting of God's law. For what you have heard, and what have they heard? Love your enemy, I mean love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is half a quotation of the law and half a fabrication. You see, you can find a number of verses in the Old Testament that speak about Israel's need to love their neighbor. But you won't find any verses in all of Scripture that says, hate your enemy. This was a terrible twisting of God's law. So where in the world did the Pharisees get this teaching from? Well, they made two huge leaps in their twisting of the Old Testament. In fact, notice how this breaks down in your notes here. First of all, the Pharisees limited the term neighbor to their fellow Israelites. The Old Testament did say correctly, love your neighbor, which is a good command. But the Pharisees twisted it to say, love only your neighbor and don't bother with the rest of humanity. Sure, you had to love your neighbor, but if someone wasn't your neighbor, then this particular command no longer applied to you. And so the command to love your neighbor was twisted to hate anyone who was not your neighbor. Now, this was a rather big deal in Jesus' day. In fact, the Pharisees would even hold debates and discussions about who was and who wasn't your neighbor. That's why when you go to the New Testament, you go to the Gospel of Luke, and there in chapter 10, when Jesus affirmed that loving your neighbor was at the very heart of the law, one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked, well, who is my neighbor? And Luke tells us the Pharisee was just trying to justify himself. He was trying, in other words, to limit the very definition of neighbor so that he could limit his love for others. In other words, this particular Pharisee came to Jesus and he was trying to get off on a technicality in the law. But Jesus would have none of it. In fact, do you remember how Jesus answered this Pharisee? He told what is known as the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. And so the Pharisees, what we're seeing here, they had limited the term neighbor to their fellow Israelites. But Jesus, through the parable of the Good Samaritan, he showed this particular Pharisee that your neighbor is anyone within your life who you are in a position to help. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their religion. It doesn't matter if they have hurt you in the past or not. Neighbor includes all people. Not just the people who you like, not just the people who are like you. But the Pharisees limited that. They limited it to the people who are like them and to the people they liked. They limited the term neighbor 
to a very select few, their fellow Israelites. But they also did something else. The Pharisees, in the twisting of God's law, they actually used God's hatred for evil to allow for their personal animosity toward people they didn't like. Now, certain passages in the Old Testament on the surface do appear to approve of hating one's enemies. For example, when it came to the Canaanites, when the children of Israel were entering into the promised land, God actually commanded His people, the Israelites, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, He says to them, You, you Israel, my people, you must destroy them, the Canaanites, totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. The Lord, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, He promised to defend Israel. He promised to fight her enemies and to, quote, put curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You go to some of the Psalms. And several Psalms rejoice in God's judgment on those who hate God and hate His people. For example, Psalm chapter 11, verse 5 says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, His, God's soul, hates. Even King David. He writes in Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies, David says. Now, you read verses like that, and it certainly doesn't sound like, love your enemies. So what do we do with that? How how are we supposed to understand these verses here? How do we reconcile the tension we're all feeling right now? Well, first of all, as believers, listen to me, believe it or not, we are to hate violence. We are to hate evil and injustice. And since some people do give themselves over to such despicable sins, they are often called in God's Word the violent or the wicked in the Bible. Second of all, though, we must understand that the Bible never, never, never commands us as Christ followers to hate individual enemies. But there is a place for righteous anger against God's subtle enemies. As one commentator comments, There is such a thing as perfect hatred, just as there is such a thing as righteous anger. But it is a hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. Third thing to consider in this tension is we don't know if a person is God's enemy for all of eternity or God's enemy who will actually come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we now, we are to leave judgment in God's hands. We, we as Christ followers especially, we are to show mercy to all people. And we are to pray that they 
will turn to God and will be saved. So if the Old Testament never said, hate your enemy, what did it say then? Well, notice this. What the Old Testament actually taught was love your neighbor as yourself and to do good to your enemy. In fact, God said in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the command that is often repeated even in the New Testament. And notice that God's emphasis here was not on who is my neighbor. That's where the Pharisees put all the emphasis, but rather on how I am to love my neighbor. And what does God say? Just as you love yourself. And we all know how we love ourselves. Oh, we put ourselves first. That's how much we love ourselves. And God said, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's what the Pharisees did. They conveniently omitted that phrase since it was inconceivable in their mind that they should care for any other person as much as they cared for themselves. Now, in adopting this twisted teaching of love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the Pharisees also had to ignore, even deny, other Old Testament passages that taught kindness toward one's enemies. For example, you go to Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 through 5, and it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. In other words, it'd be like you have a neighbor that, well, you don't like. They're your, quote, enemy. And their dog gets out from the backyard and wanders off and you see it. What are you to do? Feed it treats into the highway so it can get killed? No! What does God say here? Look what he says. He says, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. In fact, Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, listen, God's standard for his people was to love your neighbor as yourself and to do good to your enemy. But by Jesus' day, that standard was being limited. It was limited love by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount here. Where the Pharisees are saying and even teaching, I will love only my Israelite neighbor and I will hate everyone else. In fact, one Jewish community had the saying, love the brother, hate the outsider." Let me tell you, not too many Gentiles were vacationing in Palestine in Jesus' day. So the Pharisees taught, hate your enemy. So what did Jesus teach? Well, notice number two, Jesus comes along, and here's what he taught, the very opposite of that. He taught, love your enemies. We see this when Jesus says in verse 44 here, But I say to you, and when Jesus says, but I say to you, he is speaking with the authority of God himself. And Jesus says, I now say to you, love your enemies. Now that was supremely radical in Jesus' day, just as it is still radical in our day. Nobody except Jesus taught you to love your enemies. 
In fact, this command goes far, far beyond what Jesus said in the previous section when somebody wronged you. You are no longer refusing to seek revenge on your enemies, but now Jesus says you are to pursue their goodwill and love them. The world may say haters going to hate, but Jesus is saying Christians going to love. Jesus doesn't say, I have two commands. One is love your neighbor and one is love your enemy. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying this. I have one command. Love your neighbor, and I mean even if he or she is your enemy. But what does Jesus mean by enemy? Perhaps we need to stop and define our terms here. Define what Jesus means by this word enemies. Who are these enemies we are being called to love here in such a radical way? Well, Jesus tells us in the rest of verse 44. He gives us examples of who these enemies might be in our lives. Notice what he says. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So who is your enemy right now today? In the broadest sense, we could say it this way. Your enemy is anyone who opposes you or has turned against you. And that enemy, your enemy, includes those who curse you, who hate you, who spitefully use you, and even persecute you in your faith. Now, it's obvious here, Jesus is not talking about foreign enemies on the other side of the world. Rather, Jesus is talking about personal enemies who tend to be much closer to home. In fact, home is often the first place to look for our enemies. Jesus himself would later say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 36, that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And the reason that is sometimes true is because when somebody in a household comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it causes division between the family. We could also add school to this list. We could add work, our neighborhood, and perhaps even church to the list of places we encounter our enemy. So again, let me ask you, who at this point in time in your life, who, who, who is your enemy? It could be anybody who opposes you or turns against you. It could be someone who hates you. They may be someone who is cursing you, someone who is spitefully using you, or even persecuting you at this moment for following Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, whoever, whoever that might be, love them. Love your enemies. Now, I have to admit, my first question to that is, how, Jesus? How do you do this? How are we to do this? And it's important to note what Jesus is saying here and not saying here to us. Jesus is not, let me be clear about this, he is not saying that we must love our enemies in the same way that we love our family and our friends. He's not asking you, 
to have a romantic love or even a family love or a brotherly love for your enemies. What Jesus commands is what is called an agape love. An agape love is simply this. It's a deliberate, it is a determined love, an intentional love that chooses to bless, do good, pray for our enemies. We are to agape love our enemies. In other words, we are to seek out their well-being in a selfless and, if need be, even a sacrificial way. It does not mean that we necessarily like them or especially like what they are doing to us. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. But he is saying it does mean we love, intentional love, sacrificial love, selfishless love. We agape love our enemies. One commentator put it this way. Love indeed. It sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy. It feels his stabs and his blows. It may even have something to do toward warding them off. But all this simply fills the loving heart with the one desire and aim, and that is to free its enemy from his hate, to rescue him from his sin, and thus to save his soul. That, that is love without limits. And it's supremely radical. Now, why would Jesus command us to love in this manner? Why would he command this? And he gives us two reasons here right in our text. Notice this here. Two reasons to love without limits. And the first reason Jesus says to do this, this is why I'm commanding my followers to love in this manner, is because, first of all, you demonstrate that God is your heavenly Father when you love like God loves. You demonstrate something. You demonstrate it to yourself and you demonstrate it to the world. And what are you demonstrating? That you are a child of God. And God, the Heavenly Father God, is your Father. Why? Because you are now loving like He loves. I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, like Father, like Son. Now, with my father and I, that's not true. Because, you know, normally, typically, that phrase means that the, the son looks like his father. But when I stand by my father, I don't look anything like my father. But you know what? The phrase also means I may act like my father. Now, that is true. You demonstrate, in other words. Here's the idea. You demonstrate that you are a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, when you love like God loves. To be clear, this does not mean that we can somehow earn our way into God's family by just loving our enemies. Rather, it means that when we love our enemies, we prove ourselves to be in God's eternal family. In other words, loving your enemies doesn't pay for your birth into God's family. It simply proves you've been born into God's family because you're now loving like God loves. Now, of course, this begs the obvious question. Well, how does God love? And very simply here in the text, Jesus tells us He loves impartially. He loves without distinction. He loves without bias or 
prejudice. In other words, he makes his sun rise on both the evil and the good. He sends his rain on both the just and the unjust. God doesn't limit his sun and rain to those who just love him back. God shows his love towards those who actually hate him by giving them the exact same sun and same rain as he gives all of his children. In other words, God showers his love on all people without distinction. These are oftentimes called expressions of God's common grace. In other words, they are blessings that God the Father gives to all people everywhere, even to his enemies. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to have a proper understanding in context of what Jesus is saying. Because at the same time, notice that although God loves his enemies without distinction, he does not in any way sugarcoat or condone their sin. Now, this has practical relevance for where we live today in our culture. Did you notice in the same verse, God still calls them what? He calls them evil and he calls them unjust. And God still calls them elsewhere in other places in the Bible. He calls them to repentance for their sin. And he calls them to turn to God and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we can love our enemies without calling them or their actions good. Listen, if Jesus were living in our culture today, he would be guilty of hate speech by this verse alone. Jesus never shied away from telling the truth, but doing so in love and in grace. At the same time, he never condoned one sin. Listen, we can say, and we can love like God loves, and when we do, we can say in a special sense, like Father, like son, or like daughter. Now, this is not just wishful thinking for us because the love that Jesus is calling us to demonstrate is actually a love that he also exemplified. When his enemies sought to triumph over him, what did Jesus do? He himself, he loved them and prayed for them that they might be forgiven. And his power... The power of Jesus Christ is now our power as Christ followers. In fact, that power is what enables us now to live this out, to do the same, which is now illustrated even in the life and death of Stephen when he prayed for his persecutors in the book of Acts. And at his point of death, he is saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as they are in the midst of killing But there's another reason Jesus gives us for loving in this way. Agape love, our enemies. He says you not only demonstrate something, but you distinguish. You distinguish yourself from the world when you love more than the world loves. Jesus drives this point home by asking a series of questions that are meant to illustrate how our love is to be radically different than the way the world loves. Look what he says in verses 46 and 47. 
In Jesus' own words again, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Now, again, let's be honest here. If you're like myself, we're in the same boat here. We like to congratulate ourselves for acts of kindness done in return for acts of kindness. But you know what Jesus says about that? He says there's nothing really anything special in returning a favor. It doesn't count as a sign of love. If we love those who simply love us, he says, you deserve no credit for that. You deserve no reward for that. If we simply greet our friends that we like, Jesus says, big deal. No, you don't deserve an applause. Why? Because Jesus' point is this. Even tax collectors do that. Even they are willing to return kindness with kindness. Reciprocal love. And no one could miss the point in Jesus' day, what he was making here of his example. Why? Because tax collectors in Jesus' day were some of the most despised people on the face of the earth. Tax collectors were crooks. And not just any kind of crooks, they were rich crooks. And so they were hated by everyone, and especially the Jewish people. Why? Because most tax collectors in that day were other Jews who were collaborating with Rome, and the tax they collected funded the Roman occupation in Israel, which was oppressing them at that time. And so Jesus' point is that even these double-crossing tax collectors, you know what they did? Well, they loved their own tax collector buddies. And so if a person loves only his friends, he's really doing nothing better than a tax collector. Now, again, it's easy to feel good about ourselves for loving people who reciprocate our love. But if that's as far as we extend our love, Jesus says, big deal. You haven't done anything special yet. In fact, you haven't done anything explicitly Christ-like yet. The point Jesus is getting at here is that the supernatural distinction that sets us apart as Christians isn't. It is not how we treat our family and friends. That says next to nothing about our faith. What sets you apart from the rest of the world is when you love more than the world loves. You see, the key characteristic that sets us apart from the world is that we love our enemies in a manner that reflects the Father's love toward His enemies. The question that we must ask ourselves, and it is a heart question, it's a question that each of us needs to go before God and let Him search our own heart as well. But this is the question. How far does my love extend? Is there, is there a, quote, more in my love? And who do you need to show more love to? You see, this goes all the way back to the beginning of this section here 
When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, going back to verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what's really interesting here, make, connect the dots with me, is that the word translated in verse 24, exceeds or surpasses, comes from the same root word that's translated here in verse 47 as more. The whole reason that we as Christ followers, the whole reason now that we can love more than the world is because we actually have more than the world. We have what? We have an exceeding righteousness. We now have a surpassing righteousness, a perfect righteousness through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are without excuse, in other words, not to love our enemies more than the way the world loves. We have everything we need as Christ followers to actually love in this manner. This is why Jesus summarizes not only the loving your enemies, but really the whole section we've been studying for the last six weeks, where he says now in verse 48, look at it, and it's a wowzer of a summary verse. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Not as your spouse, not as your kid or your parent or your neighbor or friend, because we know how they're perfect. They're not. Notice what he says. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Note, Jesus is making it clear that the goal of our Christian life, the goal of Christianity is perfection. As Christ followers, Jesus is calling us to a standard of living here, and that is to be like Jesus, the only one who lived a perfect life. But the burden of that The burden of trying to be perfect is so heavy that someone said these words. The Christian life has not been tried and found difficult. It has been tried and found impossible. But get this. This is beautiful. God, God offers hope for success. Not just mercy for failure in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, notice this in your notes. What is impossible for us to achieve has already been achieved for us in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus can command us, call us out as his Christ followers and say, listen, this is the standard you are to live in my kingdom as kingdom citizens. This, love your enemies like God the Father loves his enemies without impartiality. And do it perfectly, even though on this side of heaven we can never attain the perfection. And yet our position before God is perfection because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, the impossible righteousness becomes possible for those who trust in Christ. Because he gives us what? His righteousness. And so the conclusion to all this is not, is not to walk out of here and think to yourself that you can somehow, you can muster up enough strength and enough love to achieve this exceeding righteousness on your own efforts because you can't. 
nor, nor is it to walk out of here in despair without hope. God forbid you do that. What it means is simply to take us back to the Beatitudes section of Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy due to our sin and to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. In other words, His righteousness can be your righteousness, exceeding righteousness through your faith in Him. The truth is, we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. The Bible tells us that we, get this, we, we are the very enemies of God and deserving of His wrath because of our sin. And that's bad news. But thank God for the good news. The good news is God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. And Paul writes in these verses, and I think they're there in your notes. Look at them with me. Romans 5. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Here we see the great love of God in action. The ultimate display of love for his enemies. And God simply calls you to believe, to turn from your sin, and to trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, God promises to consider your sin paid for in Christ's righteousness to be your righteousness. It doesn't get any better than that. That is glorious news. All because of what Jesus did through his death on the cross and his resurrection. As we prepare our own hearts for communion, I hope you will see that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Phil, that is our hope because Jesus did. Let me tell you, he did something that we could never do on our own. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law in the sense that his righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. And because he fulfilled the law, he can give us now a perfect righteousness. He fulfilled the law by living a perfect righteous life. And he fulfilled its demands against us by dying on the cross for us. And so as you come to the Lord's table, and there's four different places around the auditorium here, let me encourage you to do so with a heart of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. As you eat the bread, which symbolizes his body dying on the cross for us, give thanks for his broken body. And as you drink the juice, give thanks for the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and Let your heart be filled with a renewed desire to live out the righteousness of Christ as a kingdom citizen to the point that you love your enemies. With your heads bowed, and as we come before the Lord in prayer, 
if you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord by trusting Him for your salvation and identifying with Him in baptism and committing to His body and membership of a local church, then I invite you to participate in communion with the body of Christ here this morning. If you're here and you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I invite you to watch what the church does. And when you watch, I pray that you will see a picture of God's love for you as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace. And perhaps as you watch, you will feel the tugging of God at your heart to respond to Him and His gospel in Jesus Christ and to repent of your sin and to trust Him for your personal Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we ask that You would enable us to accept it not simply in our heads or even in the privacy of our hearts, but in our living. And we give you the praise and the glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the music begins to play, feel free to stand and walk toward one of the four tables throughout the auditorium to participate in communion. You may take the bread and the cup back to your seat to eat and drink and offer a prayer of thanks for God's mercy. And so you are invited to participate as the music begins.